Welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. This is a place where we talk about beauty and truth, the things that are most important to us, the things that ground us, and the things that uplift us. My guests are not celebrities. They are, in many ways, leading kind of ordinary lives, but they pay extraordinary attention to the world around them, and that makes the difference. If I had to ask you to write up a job description for a pastor, what would you say? Preach the gospel, officiate at weddings and funerals, guide the spiritual well-being of the congregation. In the past few years, I've had a chance to see a little more about what the work of a pastor really is. And it is all of that. And it's also social worker, custodian, building manager, CEO, HR person. I think it can be summed up as additional duties as needed. There are precious few days actually off, and even then, you're pretty much always on call. And that's when the ebb and flow of life is pretty normal, if I can even call it normal. But what about when the world seems to be literally on fire? When the stakes and the tensions are so high and every day seems to bring a new crisis? Well, today we have one pastor's perspective. The Reverend Michael Fick is the pastor of Ebenezer Lutheran Church, a progressive church in Chicago and my spiritual home. We're talking today about fear and love, pain and justice, anger and mercy, and how it is possible for mere mortals to create something beautiful and true out of some garbage and a patch of desert. It's a great conversation, and I walked away from it not with any more answers, but a little comforted in my questions. Regardless of whether you have a faith practice or not, I think you may find a little comfort here as well. Hi, Pastor Michael. Hello, Jen. I'm so glad that you agreed to uh, come on my podcast. This is a weird time. Uh, yeah, that's an understatement, but I'm really uh, I'm grateful to be asked to be here. So this is great. When I asked you to be on this episode, I didn't. There were things that hadn't happened yet. For mm-hmm. example, Kenosha yeah. and hurricanes and now I'm exceptionally grateful that you are my guest this week. Well, let's hope that remains the case. Yes. <laughs> At the same time, I feel kind of bad because so many people, I think, turn to to pastors in times of crisis. And we have had one crisis after another for so long. And I know y'all are only human. Yes, it's very true. So let me start with this. How are you doing? Honestly, I'm okay. Um, okay. I think that a lot of folks in what I would call helping professions um, mm-hmm. are probably experiencing much the same set, same cycle, I guess, of um, being energized to do the work and in new and creative ways. And then exhaustion, compassion, fatigue is a real thing. Um mm sets in for a while. And it, it, it seems to ebb and flow. I think for me, the important thing has been to just know where I'm at in that cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can, I can attend to myself so that I can be helpful again. Uh, that's sometimes easier said than done. I, I can, I, I can only imagine. I was just talking about this today, because I think a lot of us are doing similar cycles, even though the People that we are helping are ourselves, our friends, our family. We're not responsible mm-hmm. for for other people. But um, I myself found myself in a cycle last night and this morning where it was just a little, a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, as I was putting this together today, I was really thinking about you, and um, I'm I'm glad to hear that that you're in an okay phase of the cycle. Yes, well, and thank you for asking. And and, and it is it is uh, challenging when you um, when your vocation is to try to be helpful to people, but also, you know, I have friends and my own family and those things too that need uh, attending to. I don't have family that I live with, but 
Um, I have family that I'm closely connected to, and they've been Mm -hmm. through their own set of extra um, difficulties during the course of this pandemic because they live in that part of central Michigan where all the dams washed away. Uh, In fact, on one of the lakes where the dam washed away. Uh, so, and that was in the middle of a pandemic as well. So it's, it, it is a lot to try and juggle all of those things sometimes. I think that's an understatement. Another understatement. A lot to juggle. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, well, you know, since we're, since we're starting with this, it wasn't where I intended to start, but well, let me introduce you first. You are the pastor of Ebenezer Lutheran Church in Chicago. Um, you've been there now, what, 10 years? Is it just now 10? Getting close to, it'll be 10, it'll be 10 years next summer. Okay. So nine. Yeah. Wow. It doesn't seem like nine. No, it doesn't. I've never been bored. We'll put it that way. No, neither have I, which is part of why I'm a member. I know that you have said how you have described Ebenezer to people before you've told me anyway um yes would you would you mind using that description oh I, yeah absolutely i i lovingly um and of course this isn't true in every case but i think it, it's true in a lot of them uh, describe it as a collection of people who are sometimes amazed they are at church and i love that about the community because what i mean when i say that is it's uh by and large a collection of people who really want to ask good questions, mm-hmm. who are much less interested in absolutes and certainty than they are in the ways of spiritual inquiry, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a place that's comfortable with mystery. Um, and those fit pretty well with who I am and what I'm about. So it's been, I think, a good fit spiritually for me as well. Um, I'm not the kind of pastor at at Ebenezer anyway, where I have to, you know, go through the sermon with a fine tooth comb and try and figure out what, you know, might upset somebody or might get me a nasty note in my mail or uh, that that doesn't really happen there. Uh, Even if folks don't agree with something I said, they're kind of excited to talk about why. And I, I think that's a, I think that's a healthy thing. I think so too. Um, that's part of why I'm there. I'm someone who found myself amazed to be in church. <laughs> I'm one of those people. Um, yeah, I think that, that's that's a phenomenal description. And I would just add to that, that my experience and part of why I still go is that this is a group of people who, regardless of almost anything else, are just trying to be really decent human beings. I would agree with that. I mean... We're all, you know, wonderfully and uh, quirkily flawed in our own ways. And but I would say that um, the the impulse behind what I experience most folks in this community to be is is wanting to live well in the world and think about what that means. What is that that piece of scripture, walk humbly, do justice, something like that? Yes, it's from Micah. Um, and it's it's the idea of uh, walking humbly, doing justice, uh, and, and doing those things with God. Um, so there's a there's a implication there that the the prophet's understanding of what God is asking of people is a life of that's rather simple. Mm-hmm. But but profound in that simplicity, because um, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God are fairly straightforward ways of describing something that's both elegantly simple and also a huge task. Uh, oh, a task that's yes. probably bigger than any individual human being could undertake themselves. So I, I just I just wrote this down because I'd forgotten the part about loving mercy. Mm -hmm. And as you said that, it suddenly resonated that this is the times that we are in right now are not times of humility or mercy or justice. No, I think that they're not. And I think that uh, thus it has always been in, in many ways. 
Uh, True. Profits, profits emerge. And, and yeah, so of course, the, the intensity of that ebbs and flows and from one society or historical period to another. But that kind of spiritual calling uh, has been, I think, necessary for as long as human beings have been interacting with each other. Do you How think it's? Do you think it only works as an individual calling? No, no. And in fact, if I think that if 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 living that way depended on my ability to sort of muster that within myself consistently, uh, that would be that would be really hard for me. It's the it's the communal act of trying to do that together which involves, you know, some mutual accountability, but also um, mutual support for when, you know, circles back to what we discussed going on with this whole time of the pandemic is that uh, one person's energy to seek those things may be lower than another's at any given time. And if you're doing those things in community, then, then there's a way that things continue to move forward, even if I'm not at 100% my best and vice versa. Fair point. That's a fair point. So, oh gosh, this is, <laughs> I have so many things and, and <laughs> thoughts and, and, and questions for you. Um, so this podcast is, is dedicated clearly to discussing things that are beautiful or true or beautiful and true. And that is sometimes very difficult. <laughs> especially when it feels like everything is is burning is on fire uh but very necessary mm -hmm. and i mm -hmm. and at the same time i have often heard of god being experienced as the good the beautiful and the true yes those would be ways that God is most frequently described, uh, I think, by those of us who seek after or are sought after by God, um, or perceive ourselves to be in that case, in that situation. Um, I think, you know, I come out of a tradition that that, that likes to hold things in tension, mm -hmm. and so I think beauty and truth. Um, are not always comfortable. No, not, they're not at always, all. They're not, they're, neither of them are always pleasant. Um, they may require of me things I don't feel like I'm prepared to give. Um, mm -hmm. They may ask of me changes within myself that I don't know that I can accomplish. So I, I'm, I'm comfortable with the fact that even at a time when everything seems to be falling apart, there are still ways in which beauty and truth, which I understand to be God, is is inbreaking, is 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 present. Uh, we would say in with and under all of that, um, which can be hard because then it it you know you end up in this place where you know either God is totally checked out or God seems to be um, participating in things that are not very beautiful or true or good, um, and that's been the mystery of you know, contemplating something that is bigger and larger than ourselves at work in the universe, I think from the beginning, it's sort of the question. It's the mystery. Yes. How, if, if God is all, all powerful, right. Why doesn't God do something? And if God is not, is all good, why doesn't God do something? Right. And, and, it, and, it, might, and it might sound like a cop out, but I'm, I'm pretty comfortable to sit with the uncomfortable mystery of that. Mm -hmm. relying on the reality that my perception is pretty limited. My understanding of what, um, what God is or even how, uh, how God moves through the world or, or interacts with me and with others is, is necessarily limited at, to my place in the world and my experiences. And so, Beautiful and true things can often be really hard. Um, and there are also some things that are frequently called beautiful and true that maybe aren't and need to be re-examined. And I think that that's part of the crucible that 
we're living through as a society right now. We are we are engaged in a great argument as to what is beautiful and true in our country. Yes. And about America. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yep. Oof. And what so, are the and what are the ways in which we define what's beautiful and what's true? I mean, that's a that's a it's all it all seems quite subjective, and from our point of view, it probably is subjective. But those are the big questions I think that face us right now. Is is uh, exactly as you put it: is what's beautiful and what's true, and who gets to decide that? Well, my premise has always been that for everybody individually, it is an incredibly personal thing. Yeah. There are some commonalities, of course, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and one of the things that has come up in these interviews that I've these these conversations that I'm having, almost everybody mentions nature, and almost everyone yep. mentions their family, and mm-hmm. I would say probably at least half have mentioned, if not directly God, then the divine, mm-hmm. or some or the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, Right, and, but that, but then uh, you know, circling back to though your questions about you know, we've not only had this pandemic, but we also have had you know floods and hurricanes and fires um, that have been so intense. Uh, I think that that's an example of where nature for is such a is such an inspiration and is such a source of beauty and truth but it also has the capacity to be incredibly destructive. Um, yep. It, you know, the, the forest is beautiful until it's on fire around your house. Um, the ocean is beautiful until it's 30 feet high. Right. And in your living room. Right. And of course, this is a time when we are quite rightly speaking of our own culpability in the intensification of these events mm-hmm. uh, through our own collective neglect of the natural world. Uh, and exploitation of it. Um, yeah, I would say neglect it, it, is neglect is a soft is a well, soft yes, condemnation of us. Yeah. yeah, exploitation is probably a better a better term. Um, but I think that that does then raise those questions of if this is something that we find to be full of truth and beauty, how do we interact with it in a way that preserves that, while also accepting that there are parts of the natural world. I think um, that. It's going to be difficult for us to interact with and find the beauty in it like a hurricane. Um, But to bring it back around to my perception of God in all of that, too, I think um, people quite rightly ask, you know, if if one concedes in one way or another that God is, is is a creator of the world, the creator of the world, you know, why would it be also wild and potentially dangerous to human beings in cases like this? It's a hard question. But then I come back to conversations I've had with other people where uh, God is wild. Oh, yes. And a little dangerous. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a lot dangerous. Yes. Um, and not to be tamed and cannot be tamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that's how, uh, at least in the in the Christian and the, 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 the Jewish and Hebrew traditions from which Christianity springs, um, there has definitely always been a perception of, of both a, a, a gentleness about the divine, but also uh, an intensity about the divine um, that that come together. They've always, they that they've always people have always experienced God as having both and all of those aspects. Yeah, I've gone silent for a moment because, like, trying to contemplate the mystery of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we say that God is love, mm-hmm. and love is all of those things too, right? Very true. I think that's why God, love is a description that people use for God so often, is because love, in most human beings' experience. Um, or many can can be all of those things. It can be wild, and it can be gentle, and it can be a little scary or a lot scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's even when it's healthy and good and rich. Right. Exactly. Yes, the kind of love we would want to attribute to the divine, even then. Um, right. 
is not is certainly not predictable. So we're recording this on the Friday after after the after the Hurricane Laura and after the shootings in Kenosha. Yeah. All of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to say I'm I am struggling. I am I'm I'm on the struggle bus. Where do you find God in events like Kenosha? How do we how do we what do, what do we make of that? And what do we make of the divine in circumstances where a young black father is shot in the back seven times? I think I mean what I, like you I'm still processing it all but it but it's been my observation that there's at least as we what we know now there's no corner of these events that are not filled with debilitating fear that is yes so really much fear. i think really i think on the part of everyone involved and some of those fears are rational and some of them are not some of them are fueled by deep and systemic racism. But it does beg the question for someone like me to to wonder if we are in a place as a society where we are so intensely fearful of everything and of one another, what does God do in the presence of that kind of fear? How does God come into that revelation, participate in that conversation. One of the things Jesus says over and over again is do not be afraid. Whenever I preach on those texts, I remind myself that the reason Jesus says it so often is because almost every person he's encountering is afraid. (laughs) He just keeps repeating himself. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's kind of the human condition. Yes, because the human condition is fear. So if perfect many things, but it's but fear is always there. If perfect love casts if perfect love casts out fear, then I'm beginning to wonder what is you know how do we how do we cultivate that kind of love that is more perfect among us so that we will not be so afraid of one another because i I do think that the murders that were committed by um either that old child or young man, I don't know how we would describe him, um, to the officers involved in the shooting, to Mm -hmm. um, Jacob Blake and the others who were um, shot, that the common denominator is that everybody in those situations, I think, is deeply afraid. And some of them, some of that fear is justified by a, a history of, of racism um, preceded by slavery and dehumanization that is past present. Um, and some of it is fueled by an irrational generational fear among white people like myself of black and brown people that we have to, we have to be liberated from or Absolutely. this fear-based violence is just going to continue to cycle. I don't have a magic answer. I'm still I'm still trying to digest that all myself. But I but if there's one thing I know for sure, it's that um, the God I know has been addressing fearful people for as long as people could write down what their experiences of that were. And I think that's for me a, a part of you know re- recovering from the irrationality of fears that I was steeped in as well as anyone else. Yeah, same. I was, um, you know, I don't, I don't consider myself to be like the world's greatest or most faithful Christian. Um, nor I, nor, nor do <laughs> I consider myself to be in that category either. But when I think about, sometimes I think it's not love that conquers fear. It's we who conquer fear, which allows love in. Mm. So, I, I mean, it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, yeah. I guess, for me. 
Well, and for me, as a as a as a person who identifies as a Christian, I think one of the most essential pieces of that for me um, is this central notion that God has been a victim of human violence. Mm. And so you ask me, where is God in that situation? One answer I would give is that God has, has been the victim of human violence and um, which is not something God would have had to do (laughs) or allow, um, but did so to demonstrate what love looks like. And so I know that anytime someone is a victim of violence, that God, for me, in my opinion, is in some real and substantive way with the person who has, is the victim of violence, um, because God's been there and dwelled in and with that. Yeah. That's not meant to, you know, make it sound like uh, that makes everything okay. It certainly does not. But no. I think, but I think that um, for me, God is not absent. Um, God is is present. Mm. These are always tough questions, and they're made really tough, really tough right now when when we're in a crucible like this. Yeah, these. I mean, this is the great mystery of our existence, and um, and right now, there's a lot of people in a lot of pain who are asking these really hard questions. There are. That's what that's what I over and over. What I what I see is fear and pain. Mm. I mean, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on, I, that seems to be those two things seem to be in the front of everybody's not just our minds but our hearts. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's also uh, one thing that that can stoke additional fear is when things we thought we were, we thought were certainties turn out not to be. Mm -hmm. And that's true within spiritual matters, but I think it's also true in just very practical matters that, um, that fear is, fear is intensified when things that we thought were reliably never going to change do. And right now we're just experiencing so many things that we thought were real. I mean, I, I certainly didn't think it was possible for there to be an out of control pandemic in the United States. Right. I was wrong. And that is deeply unsettling. Um, I was probably just naive about that, but it, you know, it, no one who lives, you know, I think, I think that that's just at the crux of what, as you said, a lot of people who come from a lot of different directions and have a lot of different responses to the world um, are having a, a common experience. Hmm. And maybe it begins with the vulnerability of being able to admit that you're scared. Maybe. But that breaks open the ability to have a different kind of conversation. You are, of course, familiar with Star Wars. Uh, deep, Yes, deeply. Because not only are you a pastor, you're also a wonderful nerd. I am. I am indeed and proud of it. Although I think Star Wars has transcended nerdiness at this point. Um, so we're, we're talking about fear so much, and I'm thinking about how much anger there is also. And then, I, of course, I go to Yoda. Of course. Fear leads to anger. Mm-hmm. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for me to think of an, of an example uh, where I have been angry. Um when it didn't stem from some kind of more base emotion, usually fear. Um, I don't, I don't want to universalize that and say it's true for everyone, but I think that that fear is a pretty, uh, a pretty base emotion for a lot of us and how we've been socialized to respond to being afraid. Um, I think is one of the really important questions that as a society we have to ask. Um, I think most of us have been have been trained to leap straight to anger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The only there's the only anger I know of. Like think I think about your question. The only anger that I'm aware of that doesn't come from fear is it comes from a sense of injustice. Yes. 
Brene Brown had a guest on, and I wish I could remember his name. I'm going to put it in the, I'm going to find it and put it in the program notes. Um, but he, he's an, an expert on emotion. And he was talking about, about anger and how so often anger springs out of the sense that we have something ha- wrong has been done to us. We have been wronged. Yes. Or somebody else has been wronged because we can be angry, definitely angry on other people's behalf. Um, so here we here we come to do justice. Yeah. <laughs> Walk humbly. Yeah. Do justice. Mm. Love mercy. And mercy can be really hard to love. In my experience. Oh goodness, yes. I have to tell you. Yeah. This is my this is my little confession to you, my pastor, right now, <laughs> which is that when I see these gatherings of people with no masks. Mm. And I think of the people that I know who have had really terrible experiences with, with COVID. I have thankfully not known anyone personally who's died from it, but I've known people who've been very, very sick. Mm-hmm. And the part of me that wants justice in some way is like, I hope you all get sick. Right. I don't want you to die, but I hope you all catch it. And uh, that is not a very kind or beautiful response to that situation though it i think is true you know retributive justice is a really natural i think in some ways human response to a perceived injustice um and loving mercy muddies those waters a lot oh it sure does because i love i love me some mercy and I'm not feeling a whole lot right now. <laughs> right. It, it, I, I find it easy to love mercy for people that I uh, understand to be in pain or in need or, um, or have, or more importantly, have been wronged in some way. It is much harder to love mercy for um, someone who doesn't fit into those categories very well. Hmm. And I think it's also, uh, this is the caveat I always have to give as a preacher too, which is this idea of um, being called to love your enemies uh, is not the same as uh, not acknowledging that wrong has occurred. Mm -hmm. And it's also not asking someone who is being abused or mistreated to sort of gleefully stay in that situation so that uh so that they can you know be shown to how much spiritual fortitude they have i think that's a bunch of nonsense that's been used to sort of re-victimize people over and over again um and there's an interpretation that's favored by people that uh are pretty comfortable with other people being oppressed but i will say that um there is a deep and rich kind of love of mercy that is cultivated through a person coming to terms with what their own suffering has meant. Ooh, say more. Nobody can say that for them, but I hear, you know, I hear in, in words of the, in the words of, you know, great civil rights leaders of, um, of those who have um, experienced persecution and, and, and come to terms with what that has meant for their life lives. Um, a deep love of mercy that is almost shockingly unexpected. I mean, I would never just, I mean, based on my gut human reactions, you know, the fact that um, by all accounts, someone like Nelson Mandela came out of imprisonment loving mercy, (laughs) um, I think is a divine gift. Well, you're talking about this, and I'm thinking about the um, the Methodist Church. Yes. Mm-hmm. That experienced such an an act of hateful violence against them, the the Black Methodist Church. Yes, that the the AME the AME the AME Mother, Mother Emanuel AME in Atlanta. Thank you, thank you for for helping me with yeah. that. I'm so I wish my memory for such things was better. I I remember the story and not the details. Um, you know asked for mercy for the man who fired the shots. Yeah. 
and spoke of forgiveness and meant it. Goodness, I mean. It, 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 my, just my, my sense is that, that, is that that kind of mercy can only be bestowed by a love that's greater than any love I've ever been able to muster in myself. It's a gift. Um, and it's a profound one. And well, again, that, I, it's a gift maybe, but is, do you think it's also a practice? Yes. I think that, I think that one of the things about coming together in a spiritual community, whether it's a church or some other expression that I experience as important is that, um, it's a reminder to myself over and over and over again to be looking for that gift, to be open to perceiving it, um, to not letting it go by me without noticing it or acknowledging it. Because, again, as we said earlier, something like something like fear could consume me to such an extent that I completely miss all these profound signs of love and mercy that are unfolding. So the practice is, is to stay Forgetting. open and to pay attention. Yeah, for is me, that... the, for me, the, the practice, which for me is the liturgy and and other other spiritual practices is. Uh, not just to leave with a sense of feeling better about myself, although that's certainly important, um, but. Leaving with a sense that. I, I do not have to be afraid. And therefore, I'm open to perceiving other things in the world than besides fear. This is something that has come up over and over in these conversations that I that I think is is perhaps the absolute key to experiencing the beautiful and true. And it's it's attention, paying attention. Yeah. And, I'm, and now I'm going to add openness. Yeah. So not just, it's not enough to just pay attention, but you have to be open to what you're receiving, what you're paying attention to. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Jesus talks to his disciples about this all the time. Um, uh, about being consumed by the cares of the, of the world. And by that, I don't perceive mm. him to be saying what's going on in the world is not important. Um, so withdraw completely from it and just, you know, be this pure ascetic thing. Uh, but rather, how do you actually move through the world being very attentive to it and still holding space for things that are beautiful and true? I think I need, uh, I think I need Jesus to come, come sit in my living room <laughs> and maybe not with a mask, maybe with a mask. <laughs> And uh, deliver some of those <laughs> those truths to me in person. Yeah, I don't. I don't suppose he'll be doing that anytime soon. But I am not the keeper of such mysteries. No, I'm not asking you to be. Um. All right, I'm going to shift out of this a little bit because I have other questions mm -hmm. that I want to ask you. Not in your necessarily in your pastoral role. Although, thank you very much for taking half an hour to to be a pastor to yeah. me and also to my listeners. Um, but I want to talk about you a little bit. What, sure. how did you, how did you experience your call? What drew you in the first place? Did you fight it? Did it come easily? Tell us the story if you don't mind. Um, yeah. So I was raised in a fairly religious household. Um, we definitely went to church on Sundays and I was confirmed in the, in the Lutheran tradition, a, a slightly different Lutheran tradition than the one I serve now. Um, and I think that that was such a just sort of regular rhythm of my life that I hadn't sort of really thought about that not being part of my existence. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, is a typical story for a lot of people who, I think, grow up in religious households. Then you go to college. Or you get out on your own in some other way. And I went to college. And um, was continued to be cultivated in those spiritual practices of, of the Lutheran branch of, Christ, branch of Christianity. Um, 
and definitely felt myself feeling very comfortable in church and doing church and being engaged in church. But on the other hand, speaking of fear, as we have, uh, scared to death because that was a time where I was also coming to terms with my sexual orientation. And those two things were just not going to be able to cohabitate very well, mm-hmm. at least in my experience and at the time. This probably would have been um, around 1998. Yeah. So I, I studied abroad and I was determined that my entire time that I was in Cambridge, that I was going to not do the church thing and just try and kind of get it out of my system. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully then you know, get a PhD and teach somewhere. I had all sorts of, you know, jackets with elbow patches, visions of my future on a college campus. Oh, I can see that. I can see that other life for you. Yeah, (laughs) that was the road not taken. Um, But to be frank, even in an environment where I was surrounded by people who were not really doing the church thing, I just just kept getting drawn back into it. And so I, I was beginning to worship with and do some leadership with a little Anglican parish, you know, within a few weeks of being mm. there and having made this deal with myself that I was not going to put myself through um, what was, I thought, going to be a, a totally futile attempt to be a clergy person who was also gay. And I was not out to any friends or family or anything at this time either. I was just sort of holding it all for myself. Oh, that sounds um, lonely. It was. <laughs> And so I would say, finally, you know, the the sort of call story moment for me is a very uh, Jonah kind of moment (laughs) where, and Jonah was was one of the readings at my ordination, and I knew the in-joke on that, even though not everybody there did, Um, was I basically kind of said to God, um, fine, I will try this route, and it's going to go terribly, and then you'll have to (laughs) leave me alone. How'd that work out? You know, it just kept somehow working out. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not like a profoundly exciting call story, but really the, the, the story of my vocation is that it just kept not going wrong. <laughs> um, and I kept finding joy in it. And I kept finding that I was fulfilled by the, the work and that I was feeling spiritually centered by it and that I was perceiving God's presence and work in the world more and more deeply. And of course, there've been ups and downs to that, like it, it, there is for anybody else's life. But sure. yeah, my, my call story is one of a God who sort of slowly and persistently just kept saying, no, not that. No, not that. <laughs> How about this? How about this? How about this? Um, I mean, we don't all get to be soul. Yeah, no. And, and thank goodness, because I mean, Paul was, I mean, Paul, God love him, but he was kind of extra. And oh, yes, um, he was. Uh, I think, that, yes, but I think there's also a lot of people, and it's not not just this vocation that um, it's that sense of just feeling like you belong where you are, and I think that can happen for anybody vocationally. So that's where that's how I ended up where I where I'm at. I wouldn't say I was kicking and screaming, but I was sure it wasn't going to work. <laughs> and then it just kept working. Was there was there a time where you're like, it keeps working, darn it. <laughs> I made this promise and I can't get out of it because it keeps working. Or were you just like, all right, it keeps working. I'm here. So far, I've just been okay with the fact that it's that it's kept working. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I don't I don't mind a gentle call story. Yeah, it it was a fairly a fairly gentle one. It was not a lot of, of lightning bolts. Now, that I will say that, it, that until the church's policies on people, uh, on LGBTQ folks serving openly in the church began to change a little bit in 2009, those were the hardest years for me, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Were you out of seminary for a while before you got a call or were able to, to take a call? When I say take a call, I mean like um, for people who aren't first in church terminology that means to um, be assigned or accept the position of pastor at a church. To accept an invitation to serve at a congregation um, in our, in our, the way our system works. No, it was all very, very fast. I graduated from seminary in June and within, I think two weeks, 
uh, everything I owned was in a rented truck uh, in Roswell, New Mexico. <laughs> and I went to seminary in, in Chicago. Um, and wow. I served, I served on, as, on as a temporary basis for a little congregation that was sort of between pastors for about six months in Roswell, mm-hmm. New Mexico. And then went immediately. I was ordained after that, actually, um, to my first call, which was in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Denver, Colorado. So it moved fast. That did move fast. Okay. Can you tell me about a time in your ministry that you have really experienced something that was beautiful and true? And I'm not asking you to like give out personal information or anything. Oh, right, of but, course. Um, like a time that it, you were maybe caught off guard by something. It deep. was early. Oh, on. I know. I say right. I can. I can think of one already, but um. Here, you, yeah, you, you say oh. yours. <laughs> well, one that was very early in my ministry since I mentioned Roswell is that, you know, I arrived there. I'm basically, I mean, basically in a don't ask, don't tell relationship with the church. Like I had friends that knew and family that knew by that point. Um, but, you know, that was kind of where at least our denomination was at the time was, you know, you just kind of didn't talk about such things. Um, and I was I was young, and, and I, I will admit that I was not the bravest person in the world uh, at that time. And so I was I was kind of content to go along with that. But I I, I remember arriving in Roswell and just it's, it's a very culturally West Texas place, feeling just really out of my element. I had never even visited the Southwest before mm. I moved there. Um, it was the summer. It was like 105 degrees every day. I was living in a one-bedroom apartment on the edge of town, serving this little tiny church that was populated by octogenarians who had all retired there because it was cheaper than Arizona. <laughs> um, and had been Lutherans their whole lives from all over different parts of the country, and they all knew exactly how a church should work, and not a one of them agreed on what that looked like. <laughs> and, that sounds easy for your first call. So here, yeah. So, and I'm just—I was just assigned there by the bishop. It wasn't a regular call process because I was only there temporarily. Right. And so here comes, you know, 26-year-old me, and I'm the only, only full-time person on staff. Um, I walk in and I've got an 83-year-old church secretary who's listening to Rush Limbaugh on the radio in the in the uh, church office, and I just thought, how in the hell did I get here? And what am I going to do? (laughs) And over the course of that six months, I came to appreciate people I wasn't sure I was going to be able to learn to appreciate. And I think the opposite was also true. And I think it was a good experience in the sense, a beautiful and true experience in the sense that it really gave me a deep, sense of always wanting to try to connect with people, even if it feels initially like I can't or I shouldn't, or it's not going to work. Because I, I found out through that experience that a willingness to try and understand, even if I had to come at the end of the conversation, say, I think we're in really different places on this. Um, goes a long way. A long way. I think at the time I was a person that really needed someone to say, I, we want to try to understand you. And so I was trying to put that out into the world so that it would come back to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it, and it finally did, eventually. Um, but yeah, that was a surprising and beautiful experience of grace. Now I'm curious what the one you're thinking of is. Well, I, I'll come back to that. Okay. But um, in a in a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about this this idea of using how to use the beautiful and the true to increase connection. Mm-hmm. And um, my guest was talking about something that was beautiful and true to her, and to me it was slightly offensive, actually. Hmm. But as I was listening to her talk about it, 
um, I could see why it was both beautiful and true for her. And it didn't, it didn't change my opinion exactly for myself, Mm -hmm. but that sense of being offended just went away. Yeah. I, I couldn't be offended by, by what she was talking about. There was no, there was no offense there. Yeah. Um, and so as I start thinking about how to connect to people and how to, how to use these, these conversations and these things that I'm learning, uh, I think maybe the, one of the, the main takeaways for me is that we have to start trying to see the beautiful and true from other people's perspective and, and engage in those conversations. Why is this? Not just why is this important to you, but why is this beautiful for you? Why is this true for you? Talk to me about that. And and approaching it from a place of curiosity. And then things get so much less scary. Yeah. I I would agree with that completely. That that, um, it was it was that experience was a lesson for me in asking, you know, people to I'm sorry, you're breaking up a little okay, bit. With that, with that, there was a that learning learning to ask people to describe to me what mattered to them, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't something that mattered to me or or something that did matter to me, but I felt very differently about. Still gave me a, an insight into who they are and where they're coming from. Uh, that gives us a place to start. Yeah, and I like. I have I have to say I really like this language of beautiful and true because it is kind of inherently positive. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful certainly is things that are things that are beautiful. They they may be they may be painful. They may be all kinds of things, but it, it, it's inherently a kind of positive experience, like net positive. Mm-hmm. Um, true, eh, that's a little iffier, but. But coming at it from that kind of language and asking people in this kind of language, they start thinking about themselves a little bit differently and they think about the things that matter to them. They they describe them differently. And I hear them differently because I've asked the question with these words. It's been so wonderful and and fascinating. And I really want to get out there and experiment with it (laughs) some more. Like I want to stop (laughs) people on the street and say, hi, excuse me. Yeah. Like do yes. interviews. So um, coming back to the other story, if you're comfortable, and I, I think <laughs> you will be because this is not like a big deal, but the, the story I'm remembering is an Ash Wednesday and the soccer team. Yes. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? I do know. I do remember that very well. And that is bo- a story that is both beautiful and true. <laughs> so do you mind telling it? Sure. Um One of the things that happens at Ebenezer is that uh, when it's not uh, COVID tide, as I'm giving it a church name, COVID um, tide, (laughs) um, uh, we rent out gym space in the evenings, Um, and you know, folks that want to come play basketball or soccer for a few hours in the evening can just come and use the gym, and it's you know, it's uh, not the most perfect gym on earth, but it's also cheap and. People have a good time. Hey, and, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. So there was a group of young uh, young folks who were playing soccer in the gym uh, on a Sunday. Uh, no, excuse me. I'm sorry. It was Ash Wednesday because it was the evening. You're right. And so no, I remember. Yeah. Someone using the gym at the same time that we had had Ash Wednesday service. And in our, our tradition, we do mark people's foreheads with ashes as a reminder of, of their mortality which I would also say is something I find beautiful and true. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. And um, a, a woman came running it, kind of running to the sanctuary after the church service was over, as I remember it, um, wondering if the, uh, the kids playing soccer could get ashes. Uh, and so I remember standing in the middle of a gymnasium, <laughs> marking the foreheads of mostly young men um, with just the whole world in front of them, really. 
for all the good and the, all the truth and the beauty and all of the heartache and everything else that goes along with it. And I think I was, I was just kind of overwhelmed by the sense that um, it felt so beautiful and true and like such a privilege to put ashes on those foreheads and say, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Almost as a plea for yeah. them to, you know, really live. I think that's a beautiful thing about reminding people that they're dust and that they're going to return to it. I don't, I don't take it as necessarily a, an act of morbidity, but it's a, it's a plea to remember, remember how all of this ends. So yeah, I, I got a little tear, teary about that uh, that day. It just the, the head, the the beautiful weight of the truth that was going on there. You were teary, but I was also there because I was helping clean up afterwards after the after mm-hmm. our service. I remember and you came back in and you were a glow. Yeah, and I mean almost literally. Yeah, and that so not only was it beautiful and true for you, but it was also for me. Yeah, and hope I possibly I, I can't speak for those those young men or their uh, their insistent female. <laughs> What's the word I want? Uh, chaperone. Yes. <laughs> I can just see her lining them all up. Come, 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 come. Yep, that's exactly what happened in the middle of the gymnasium. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, that that that's um. Those are the kind of moments that continue to signal to me that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. Slight change of topic. Yes. Um, and I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to ask you two more questions. You can ask whatever, whatever you want. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, ooh, I, have I, have, I have some time, so it's okay. Um, is there a moment from a movie or a book or a play or a song that always makes you laugh or cry or makes you angry? I know, it touches um, you in some way. Always, like, me, you can watch it, it 500 me, times. It makes me laugh and cry. And I thought about this because, it, 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 especially in this context of things that are beautiful and true, um, there is a moment in Tony Kushner's Angels in America mm. that I rewatch all the time. What is it? it it's, the, it's the moment where Roy Cohn is about to die. <laughs> Oh my God! And Belize, who's been his nurse, uh, describes to him what heaven is going to be like, and it's sort of this queer, gender fluid, sort of uh, existentially realized version of San Francisco. <laughs> and Roy's reaction is something to the. To the uh, and if you know the story, I mean the Roy Cohn character is really tough. Too. Oh yeah, it, it's, it's a rough character. Um, probably was a rough real life person too. Um, he kind of scoffs and says that that doesn't sound like heaven to him at all. And Lee says something to the effect of, "Well, don't worry because you ain't there." <laughs> um. And I, I always, I always sort of chuckle at that because, again, it circles back to the conversation we had about how it's hard to have uh, to love mercy for the unmerciful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a very human part of me that's like, yeah, that's right. You're you not going to heaven, Roy Cohn. You, you don't get to be in, 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 you know, paradise queer heaven, like you know, you know, because you are such a rotten human being to be. To oh. um, I'm sorry, you're breaking up again, Pastor that, Michael. Oh, sorry. But then, you know, because you were such a rotten human being to everyone. But then it also really always, that moment always touches me, too, because it reminds me that, and I don't know if Kushner intended it this way or not, but that the person who had done so much harm to other people and was laying there about to experience whatever is next... (laughs) was actually really afraid too. Yeah. And in his own way was hurting. Yeah. 
he wanted to know what heaven was like because he wanted to be comforted by that notion. And what he got back was didn't make him very comfortable. No. Um, and so I, it may be anger too. I, it's like, darn it, I'm, I'm experiencing compassion for this character that I was determined not to. Who's in some ways somebody very easy to hate. Right. And I think that's why it's a brilliant piece of writing, first of all. Especially at the time when it was written, gay men were not supposed to have any compassion for somebody like Roy Cohn. No. But who was himself a a gay man who was hurting and dying in the same way many of them were? So that's a moment I always come back to. It reminds me of the complexity of human motivations and needs. I was just about to say, you like things complicated, Pastor Michael. I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are not a simple man, and, I, and I, 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 I'm sure you have an appreciation for the simple, but I have I've not heard you express it particularly often. For me, the complex feels more truthful and beautiful. Yeah. And that's not to say simple things are not truthful and beautiful, because they are, but... They are. Okay, last question. You sent me a picture. I did. Will you do me a favor and my listeners a favor and describe it a little bit, just fairly fairly briefly? Yeah, the photograph is of a place called Salvation Mountain, which is located in Nyland, California, near the Salton Sea. And... I'm realizing that I sent you a picture that's going to just completely confirm everything you just said about me, but that's all right. At least I'm consistent. <laughs> um, the Salton Sea is what was going to be this like idyllic resort area in the far south central California in the 50s. Mm-hmm. But the sea, which is really a giant shallow lake, is so salty because it doesn't have any tributaries in or out of it that almost nothing can live in it. And it's also where a lot of agricultural runoff ends up. And so Mm. what was going to be this sort of idealized fifties paradise never happened. And instead it's, it's a rather somewhat bleak area. I would describe it desert salt lake, you know, um, not an, uh, an area experiencing much affluence, we'll put it that way. And in the midst of it, there was this this guy. I you put it in the liner notes. I have I I can't remember his name, but perceived that he had sort of this religious quest given him to build a monument to the Lord. Hmm. And, and so he built this artificial mountain out of, I mean, basically junk covered with concrete. And painted with all these wild, beautiful colors and Bible verses, you can actually go into the mountain and there are catacomb rooms that are full of homemade religious icons that were made out of old dolls. Oh, wow. Strange and wonderful things, all found objects that he had collected. And I realized it had a stark beauty (laughs) and it was made from such a pure and simple motivation to try and make something beautiful for the divine out of out of desert and garbage but it's made out of it's made out of junk and it's in the desert <laughs> and so just visual like visiting the place was very moving to me and i think it was because it described how i often perceive the world which is there's a lot of junk that we've tried to smooth over and make into something beautiful. Um, and somehow it succeeded. It is a beautiful place that's made out of things that shouldn't be beautiful. Hmm. So for me, that's always kind of been a, my approach to how I describe the church too. It's an assembly of, of broken things and broken people and, somehow beauty emerges. And I think that's what God is. 
I want to thank Pastor Michael for talking with me today and for being willing to dive into some of the pain and anger that many of us are experiencing, and that certainly includes me. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Michael, visit www.ebenezerchurch.org. A couple of final words about this episode. The emotions expert who discussed anger as an expression of a sense of injustice, his name is Dr. Mark Brackett, and he has a book out called Permission to Feel. Salvation Mountain, which was the image that Pastor Michael talked about, was built by Leonard Knight, and it was featured heavily in the music video for Kesha's song, Praying. Pastor Michael wanted me to pass that tidbit along to all of you. As always, thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, find us on iTunes and subscribe. Search for The Beautiful and True Project. And if you really like what you hear, tell a friend about us. I hope that listening inspires you to focus on the beautiful and true in your own life. We'll talk again next Sunday. Have a great week.